on us. Pretty nice in here too, though. So we'll go back to the two bodhicittas. And I just encourage you to kind of go through your memory and recall the variations on the theme. We have kind of a nice spread of the variety of ways of approaching, or yeah, approaching exactly, uh, the ultimate bodhicitta, and also a nice variety of almost like variations on a jazz theme, but just variations on the theme of relative bodhicitta, of the Tonglen practice, and very much including, not to be overlooked, the Tonglen for oneself, right? Tonglen ones for oneself. And so wishing oneself well and moving into the realm of possibility, you know, not getting stuck, not getting stuck in the realm of actuality. Okay? So I'm looking forward to a silent session. Enjoy it. I'll see you in 25 minutes. Before we return to this discussion, which I'm kind of hoping we'll finish today, because I, I like actually hanging out in the 11th century much more than the 21st century in many respects, uh, I'd like to share with you an insight that someone shared with me. It's not my insight. Somebody I met today, and it really, really got to me. I think it's very true. And that is we had that uh, very, e very interesting feedback. Where I, again, le yesterday I learned something when I said, you know, what kind of hedonic pleasure can you get that you don't get with wealth, power, or status? And we've got some really good examples. The hedonic pleasure of a friendly conversation, the hedonic pleasure of watching a beautiful sunset. Right? So it seems to be unrelated to how wealthy you are, powerful you are, status. So very good examples. And I stand by that. I think they are very good examples. But then the insight that someone shared with me today is uh, that for you to have time, the leisure, to enjoy friendly conversation implies some degree of wealth, a little bit. For you to have the leisure to just go outside and gaze with relaxation and watch the sun go down implies you have a little bit of wealth. I thought of this woman, I, I saw her on the online New York Times, this woman, I think she was a single mother, going to work in the subway. I told you about her before. Uh, going to the work in the subway in New York City and holding it on two jobs, but for the last two or three years she'd been living in a homeless shelter because she couldn't even afford rent. I doubt that she has the leisure just to sit back and enjoy a leisurely, friendly conversation. I doubt it. What, with somebody in the homeless shelter or at work? Um, and how many sunsets does she really see? Not many sunsets in the subway, and probably not many sun sunsets at the fast food joint or wherever she's working. Uh, Probably just not a much hedonic pleasure at all. She's trying to just get by. And one day, maybe you can have a one-bedroom, one-room flat, you know? So that really, and then we think, well, that, that's New York City. That's not, no, there's no extended bellies there with no children, like, you know, dying in the street. It's not that bad. Uh, and then I think of five million refugees from the Syrian civil war on the borders of Jordan and so forth. How many sunsets? How many just leisurely, enjoyable, relaxed, friendly conversations? I don't know, but I doubt many. So that too has something to do with a bit of, little bit of wealth, a little bit of leisure. So good to recall the bigger picture. Oh yeah. So I'd like to go back and move rather briskly because I gave kind of an introduction of why I'm doing this at all yesterday, so I don't need to do that again today. Uh, and actually we covered quite a bit of territory yesterday. And I want to just remind you of this um, statement. Um, bum, 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 where is it? 
kingdom. I just want to get that. There it is. Yes, uh, the statement by the philosopher, English philosopher, it is wrong always, everywhere, and for everyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. Now, this is kind of like the, kind of the, you know, the war cry of the uh, atheist, the materialist, especially when they're launching into foolish people who believe in uh, you know, the God delusion or who are under the spell of religion and so forth. Uh, but let's just, uh, what I'd love to do is, uh, is kind of turn things on their head. I really get a kick out of that. So here's a belief, because he clearly believes that, otherwise he wouldn't say it. He believes it is wrong always, everywhere, and for everyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. And what I'd like to tell him, if you're still here, is you have that belief based upon insufficient evidence. Because that is a belief, and it's insufficient evidence. We just looked at Galileo, Copernicus, and Kepler. They all believe something for which there was insufficient evidence, but had they not believed that, it is questionable whether Galileo would have had the gumption to go off and, and discover the phases of, the moons, moons of, uh, the phases of, the, of, of Venus. You know? It wasn't wrong at that time. It was a legitimate belief. It just wasn't corroborated yet by sufficient evidence. So you have just blown your own... You've just blown your own statement because you're the first one to violate the principle that you say is always everywhere and for everyone, but exactly apparently not for you. Okay? So we've looked at, we've looked at this very uh, interesting, uh, enigmatic character, Newton. I'm not going to tell him that your beliefs in these kind of things are wrong everywhere and for everyone. Um, just to go quickly, he believed that he was chosen by God. Well, how do I know? I mean, he's one of the most striking figures in the whole of history. Maybe he has some insight. I don't know. How can I say? I don't know. I, I just don't, don't know. Uh, and the year 2060, well, you know, send me a postcard. <laughs> you know, you, you are still alive at that time. Uh, and then his, his wish to find the Philosopher's Stone, a material believed to turn base metals into gold. Just really quickly on this. Do you, do you recall how, how Padmasambhava left Tibet? There, it, it, there was a lot of animosity, a lot of envy among kind of the, the religious political structure, the boom, whatever you want to call them, the shamans, whatever. And they got to the king's ear, King Tison Detsen, and said, this guy's really dangerous. He's really dangerous. He's probably after power. You should be afraid of him. Actually, you should ask him to go. And Tison Detsen, even though he had great, uh, great respect for Padmasambhava, he actually then followed the herd. And he went to Padmasambhava and said, well, I'm really sorry to ask you, but uh, you're making a lot of people really uncomfortable here. And so do you think, would you mind going to, back to India? And we'll give you a big chunk of gold. They actually bribed Padmasambhava to leave Tibet. The king did. Right? And then Padmasambhava looked at his gold and said, you really think I need your gold? And he just went like this on a pile of stones, and they all turned to gold. He said, I don't need your gold. And so the Philosopher's Stone, in the Buddhist view, it's not some kind of elixir out there. Develop your cities. That's the Philosopher's Stone. Is right here. That's the Philosopher's Stone. The elixir of light. The elixir of life. We all know what that is. Now, oh, many, many scientists are looking for, you know, how to modify our genes, how to become semi-robots, how to, you know, have stem cell transplants and so forth, you know, for immortality by way of technology. But among the four types of vidyadara, there's the fully matured vidyadara, first level. That's where uh, Dujun Lingba placed himself, at least early in his life. The next one is a vidyadara with mastery over life. That means you can control your lifespan. 
And the Buddha, Buddha himself, Buddha Shakyamuni, in the Pali Canon said he had that ability. He said he can live as long as he likes. But after 80 years or whatever it was, something like that, he found he'd done everything he needed for that time. And he checked. He asked three times. Remember this story? He asked of Ananda. Uh, he told Ananda three times, I have the ability to live as long as I like. He said that three times. And each time Ananda said, oh. He didn't say, well, oh, in that case, please stay a long time. He didn't. And so on the third time, when Ananda just said, oh, then the Buddha turned to Ananda and said, in three months I shall pass away. And he did. But he gave everybody notice that they could come and see him for the last time, and that when he went into Parinavana, they would know where and when, and they could witness it, and so forth. And he passed away right in schedule, in utter peace. But after he passed away, our hearts can't really be upset, you know, they're not prone to anger. But one can say they were displeased with Ananda. He said, you had three chances that he could have stayed longer. And it didn't occur to you to say, please stay long. I can't get angry, but I kind of wish I could. <laughs> so there we go, Philosopher's Stone. So we move on. So Newton, we've looked at... Uh, uh, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, they all believed things for which there was insufficient evidence. I'd have to say Newton did too, because he, he never actually saw evidence there was a, a philosopher's stone or an lecture of life, or that metals have life. He believed a lot of stuff, but I don't see any real damage from it. Uh, and then we have, but then we have Darwin. So I'm going to the greats here. Charles Darwin. His, he, he believed, on the basis of his research, that, um, that it was sufficient for animals, just for animals, including us, to get just be living, and that just by through the survival of the fittest, that wasn't the term he used, but those who could survive in relationship to their changing environment, that just by passing on, you know, the children and the, the weaker ones, the less adaptive ones dying off, that that would account for the changes of species, the you know the evolution of life. He assumed that that would be that that would be sufficient, and he assumed, in other words, he was really into closure. He wanted to have he wanted to have the package with the ribbon tied, I found the answer, this is sufficient, this is the whole picture. So he felt he had the answer for that, and he also, he was challenged by his co-discoverer, Alfred, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace, uh, who co-discovered the theory. Alfred Russell, there was something really nagging at, a number, quite a number of things nagging at Alfred Rus Russell Wallace's, we just call him Al Wallace for short, um, <laughs> nagging at him when he saw how Newton and his bulldog Huxley were presenting this as, this is the total picture. Everything about human existence is now to be understood within this framework, and it's 100% physical, right? And Wallace really was, he said, wait a minute, they're just too, wait a minute, wait, this is a little bit too fast here. You're going way beyond the evidence. For example, natural selection. Natural selection is parsimonious, which is, it's stingy. And that is, in terms of natural selection, you develop abilities from generation to generation, that give you enough to survive. So a cheetah can run 65 miles an hour and the gazelles can run 63 miles an hour or 70 miles an hour, but it's close. But the cheetah didn't evolve to run 140 miles an hour, you know, so that nothing could ever stand up to it. So you get what you need, but you don't get super bounty. And that's just universally true in evolution. You get what you need to survive and adapt. You're not becoming a better and better species. That was nowhere in Darwin's view, nor is it modern evolution. But you get enough to survive, and those who don't get enough to survive, of course, they fall out and don't have babies. 
right? Um, well, I've asked multiple biologists, and I mean some world-class ones over the last 20 years, uh, okay, there it is, there's the universal rule of, of evolution in Darwinism and Neo-Darwinism. Oh, by the way, how come we're so smart? I mean, do we really need to have human beings as smart as Einstein, as Mozart, as Chopin, as, as Van Gogh, and so forth? We, we have so much more intelligence than we possibly need. We're not doing any better than cockroaches in terms of surviving. I mean, they're doing as well as we are. And rats are doing very, very well. They're not nearly as smart as we are. We are so much smarter than chimpanzees and bamboo, you know, and gorillas and so forth, our nearest relatives. I mean, there's just no comparison. Orders upon orders of magnitude. And so if you're going to say this is all by natural selection, this doesn't make any sense. We don't need to be even remotely this smart to, you know, survive and procreate. So how do you explain this? I've never heard anybody give remotely a satisfactory explanation for that. But Darwin said, never mind. So Wallace said, wait a minute, there must be some other influences coming in here that account for this. Because this is just a wild anomaly. If we think of Bach cantatas and the mathematics and the, the art and the music and so forth, it, wait, this is so much more than we need for survival and procreation. I'm sorry, but that doesn't cut it. That's a silly explanation for the capacity of the human imagination and the depth of human strivings, the aspiration for transcendence, which so many people experience, right? That's not biologically adaptive. You know. There's no explanation. Darwin said, no, 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 no. It's all covered. Well, that's fine, but that was not an evidence-based belief. And his belief that even for survival and adaptation, that just what he understood was sufficient, that also turned out to be false. It's not sufficient. It ta would take too long. And it was mental and genetics, and genetic mutation that was an absolutely necessary missing leak. And with that, okay, now it makes sense. But, but Darwin didn't know anything about genetics because Mendel did his work a couple of decades after him. So Darwin made a couple of great big beliefs that were not based upon sufficient evidence. He's still a great scientist. And on one case, he was right, that he didn't know about genetics, but it, that was the missing link. So what I'm getting at here is that none of these greatest scientists in the history of science have followed this maxim of don't believe anything on the basis of insufficient evidence. They all did, and I can keep on going. So there's Darwin. With Lord Kelvin, I, this was one of my favorite ones. Lord Kelvin, again, one of the greatest physicists in the latter part of the 19th century, he said in, eight, this is, now get the dates, he said in, he wrote in 18, well, he said in a public lecture in 1891, one thing we are sure of, and that is the reality and substantiality of the luminiferous ether. Okay? Now, it just had to be there, because he's writing this in 1891, when they're absolutely up to their neck in the, the sense that their understanding of the universe was complete, and that all causal interactions in the universe were by things bumping into each other. Mechanical interactions. That's the only thing, way that anything ever happened. So whether it's fields and waves, whether it's particles of matter and so forth, that was the only way they could imagine causality taking place. And therefore, since light... Unlike sound waves that need you know, a medium, sound or water or solid, sound waves travel through, but they, there has to be a medium that ripples because they had already studied very well wave patterns. It was a whole science of wave, you know, wave physics and field physics. They knew it very well. And, and James Clerk Maxwell had already done his work by 1890, uh, 1891. He'd done his work. So the mathematics was there. The wave properties were very, and the wave interference. But now here's the catch, light which travels as waves, as they understood then, travels through absolutely empty space. 
And the wave patterns are there. And wave interference patterns. Everything that other kinds of water waves and sound waves, waves were well understood. Here's one more type of wave. And the same wave patterns and interference takes place. Well, look, if space were totally empty, what waves? There's got to be a medium. I mean, there absolutely has to be a medium. Otherwise, you just can't have wave properties, all those ripples and amplitude and negation of waves and so forth. You've got to have a medium. It's called a luminiferous ether that saturates all of space, and that's what ripples. And it's a really, really subtle medium that fills the whole of space. And now we have a mechanical explanation, which we absolutely need, because causality is inconceivable. The causality of wave interference patterns is inconceivable in empty space without a luminiferous ether. So he said, this, this is why he says, this great scientist, he is, and there's no sarcasm from my side, he was a great scientist, but he says, one thing we are sure of, and that is the reality, it's absolutely inherently there, and substantiality absolutely inherently there, of the luminous, luminiferous ether. This is 1891. Oh, by the way, four years earlier, in 1887, these two fine experimental physicists, Michaels and Morley, definitively disproved the existence of the ether. Four years earlier. And they didn't keep it secret. I love that. It shows human beings are scientists. You know. but, but they can't conceive. They, okay, you, you disproved it, but we still believe it. You know? Because we can't imagine. And they still can't imagine. Now, now, Ether's been dead as a doornail for a long time. Einstein and Infeld, a colleague of his, wrote years later, all of the hypotheses about Ether all went nowhere. Everybody assumed it had to be there, even though there was no evidence. There was no evidence whatsoever of the existence of the Ether, but because that's the only way they could conceive of causality for light patterns, it had to be there, even though there was no evidence. Then they showed that it wasn't there, by this brilliant, brilliant experiment, uh, experiment of Marcus and Morley. So there was no evidence, and then they, sh they showed it's not only not finding it, but showing that it cannot be found. It is not to be found. They discovered an absence. It was very brilliant, br very brilliant, brilliant experiment. But even after that, they still couldn't imagine how causality of, of, of light through empty space could be occurring, so they went right back and said, we still, we're still totally sure of it, even though there's no evidence, and there's totally compelling evidence that it doesn't exist. We're still... Because we can't imagine. And we, we had such a good thing going. The mechanical universe, everything bumping into each other, and you're screwing it up. So time moves on. We have a Soviet biologist, not very well known, named Alexander Oparin. And this is 1924. And he, for the time, first time, kind of really got this ball rolling about the origin of life because Darwin uh, had no explanation whatsoever for the origin of life. As soon as you had life, then how it mutates, how it changes and so forth, adapts, that, that he understood. It was brilliant science. But he had no explanation whatsoever about, okay, life originated at some time on this planet, when and how. Don't have a clue. Don't even have a clue of a clue. So maybe God did it. And then God just... <laughs> I don't want to see how it turns out. You know? <laughs> Minimalist role for God, you know. Uh, but then Oparin, the Soviet... Of course, a Marxist, of course, a materialist. Then he proposed that the first living organisms form spontaneously out of non-living substances, implying a smooth continuum from inorganic to organic matter. Uh, and this, so, that's, of course, so many people believe that now. Um, 
oh, by, by the way, where is the sufficient evidence? He's expressing this as a belief. Oh, there was no evidence. They just didn't have a theory, but all they believed in was matter, and therefore, because of their belief system, this must be true even though there's no evidence for it. Right? Well, this was reinforced in 1953, so there we go almost, almost 30 years later. A very famous experiment done by the American biologist Stanley Miller. And he found that uh, by exposing that ex exposed gases, uh, simulating Earth's early atmosphere to, that is exposing gases to uh, an electric discharge, produced amino acids. And these are some of the very, very basic building blocks of life. And so you have those gases, you expose them to electricity, and then amino acids spontaneously form. Okay? Basic building blocks of life. And so he suggested that, that suggesting a chemical basis for the emergence of living organisms. And that is, out of just uh, gas and electricity, if you can get amino acids, the basic building, then, then just wave your wand again. Do something else cool and make those amino acids turn into more complex organic. And then wave your wand, do something else, and, it will, and, then, and then you'll have a cell, a living cell. So, uh, so Stanley Miller was very, so that's a fact, that's evidence. But then, then the assumption was, okay, now it's 1953, uh, okay, now it's only a matter of time. We, we scientists, uh, will create life. We will create life out of non-life, out of things that are not biological at all, like gases. We will do it, and now it's only a matter of time. We, we've begun it, so now just, just watch, it, watch it flow. Mm -hmm. It's time for a little bit of joke. It's a Christian joke. I like Christian jokes, some of them. And so... A person like Miller, you know, getting really confident about the powers of biologists, you know, we can, create, we can create life ourselves. It used to be given to you, God, but we can create it ourselves now. We don't need you. And so, lo and behold, bumps into God. Probably quite surprised. And he said, hey, God, everything you can do, we can do. We can create life out of non-living, inorganic matter. And, uh, yeah, so God, God said, oh, yeah, how? Just give me some dirt. And God said, make your own dirt. <laughs> God's a pretty clever dude, don't you think? Got an answer for everyone. So, but I checked with a top-notch molecular biologist about this. I mean, what's the connection between amino acids forming spontaneously, which they did, that was good science, and then forming a living cell that reproduces, does things that living organisms do. And what my friend told me that the amino acids that, uh, this was Luigi Luisi, anybody's interested? Very, very fine Italian scientist. Um, but he told me the amino acids that Miller, Miller created may be likened to individual screws in a functioning watch, which correspond to a living cell. So the amino acids are the screws and a watch is a living cell. Individual screws are needed to make a watch, just as amino acids are needed to make are needed in the formation of cell, but isolated amino acids are dead matter incapable of the interactions that characterize a living cell. A watchmaker knows how to assemble a watch from screws and other mechanical components, but biologists have made little progress in artificially transforming amino acids into living organisms. So there was a great big belief, and it's kind of now really widespread. It's almost like, you know, if you doubt this, what are you, stupid or something? that life on this planet emerged from inorganic. But then I keep on watching the media. They're coming out with one idea after another, and they're totally different. The last one I saw is maybe they came from Mars. Another one was there the, was some asteroid that carries some little, uh, little organism on it, traveling at about 3 degrees Kelvin, 
through empty space for maybe some billions of years, and then goes through, I don't know how many thousands of degrees when it enters the Earth's atmosphere, a couple of thousand degrees. Uh, and so it goes from super cold, and oh, by the way, it's last, it, it lives for millions of years, maybe billions, and it's hanging out in this rock in empty space, right? And then it gets to the, Earth, the Earth's atmosphere, and then it heats up to something like 3,000 degrees, and then hits the Earth, and that, that little single-celled organism, whatever, hops off the rock and said, home. Uh, this kind of stretches the imagination, and this is one of the you know, reputable scientific theories about how life originated on the planet. I mean, Superman in the form of an amoeba. You know, it's, they're really stretching it here. They're really stretching it. Other ones, they've got it, or, uh, a volcanic fissures in the ocean. Other ones, that extraterrestrial beings came in and seeded our planet with life. I mean, it's one more cockamamie under theory after another that they're all taking seriously with no evidence whatsoever. And that big evidence that Miller was supposed to said was going to be just around the corner, it ain't happened. So there's an awful lot of belief here, and then you're looking, where's your evidence? Oh, we don't have that yet, but trust us. You know. Okay, oh, ye faithful. And now we get really close to home. Today, 2013, the almost ubiquitous belief in the neuroscientific community that the mind is the brain. There's a first starter. Mind is the brain, equivalent. As one neuroscientist, very good one, that I met in Hamburg a couple of years back, she said, I am a neuroscientist, therefore I believe the mind is the brain. That was her sentence. And then I questioned her. Well, we had fun. And I won't go into the whole detail, but what it boiled down, what she was very candid, very honest, good scientist, and she said, um, I probably pointed out, or if I didn't, I'll do it now. If you're going to say two things are equivalent, you know, they're actually exactly the same thing, uh, then you would want to see that they have some characteristics in common. The mind and the brain don't. The brain weighs, what, two kilos? And it's about the, the consistency of tapioca pudding, and it consists of chemicals and electricity. The mind doesn't weigh anything, doesn't clearly have any location, as you all pretty well know by now. Um, it has no physical attributes. It doesn't have, it has no mass, charge, location, spin, or momentum, or velocity, of course. Um, when you, if the two things are the same, you would think you could see them simultaneously. Well, when you look at the brain, you don't see any mind. When you look at mental events, you don't see the brain. So all of the evidence suggests this is completely baloney. All of the evidence. There is no evidence whatsoever they're equivalent. But, well, but I ask you, so how do you... How do you how do you justify this when there's actually no evidence at all that they're the same? And she says, well, and her answer was very, very illuminating. I love it when scientists are just really clear about their belief. And she said, I cannot imagine how the mind could interact with the brain if the mind is not physical. Therefore, since I can't imagine it, it's not true. And that's the evidence. Not any evidence. It's just that I can't imagine it, and therefore it can't be true. We're going to find that crops up repeatedly. There's, but that's not the only idea. There's an other idea that the mind is what the brain does. Now, that's almost universally accepted. The mind is what the brain does. That's, that's oh, that's like going into a, an, a, a what it called? A, a, what's it called? Where you have a, a, a birdhouse with a whole bunch of birds? What's it called? It starts with an A. Avery, thank you, an Avery. It's like stepping into an Avery and, see, and hearing all the birds chirping the same song. You know, it, you're stepping into the Avery of neuroscience and they're all chirping the same song. The mind is what the brain does. Mind is what the brain does. Okay, that's fine. In other words, the mind is a function of the brain. Okay, now look in the whole of the entire rest of the universe, 
and identify, identify any physical phenomenon in your life of any sort whatsoever and identify a function, any function whatsoever of that physical phenomenon. Okay? That's easy, right? For everything else where you actually have a physical phenomenon and a function of it. You know what you find? Look at the function. You're looking at the entity that has that function. You're seeing them simultaneously with the same mode of observation. If you're looking at the entity, you can see its function because they're in the same place and you can see them. The function is physical. You can see it. It's a function of a physical thing. Look at the mind. You don't see the brain. Look at the brain. You don't see the mind. So then how do you say, look, it's unlike the relationship of function for everything else in the, in the universe. So you have no evidence whatsoever. You're just saying that. Okay, well, okay, no, no. The mind is an emergent property of the brain. Cool, this is a very good uh, scientific category, emergent property. They're all over the place. Uh, the activity of a mob is an emergent property of the collection of all the people in the mob. But if you observe mob behavior, you are observing the people who, are the people who make up the mob. Watch those individuals who are in the mob, and you'll see the behavior, the emergent behavior of the mob. It's the same thing. This is true for all of nature. Whenever there's an emergent property of any physical phenomenon whatsoever of any kind, when you observe the emergent phenomenon, you're looking right at the phenomenon from which that's emerging. And when you look at the phenomenon, you can see the emer property emerging from it. You look at the wetness of water. That's an emergent property of a whole bunch of H2O molecules. It's wet. A single molecule isn't wet. But when you're looking at water and feeling its wetness, right there, you see the water. Or you take a magnifying glass or a, tel or a, a, a microscope, and there you're touching it, going, and then you just, whoop, and you see the H2O molecules. All you need to do is get higher magnification. Look at the mind at any level of magnification, you don't come up with neurons. Look at the brain at any level of magnification, you don't come up with mind. You don't see any mental events, emotions, desires, colors, or anything like that. In other words, all the evidence is pointing to every single hypothesis being false. And yet they're universally accepted. This is science. Well, it's absolute violation of what they're touting as the big, the big, big principle of science, that we don't believe anything unless we have sufficient evidence. That sounds maybe a little bit abstract. But again, it's all because they simply cannot, neuroscientists and pretty much the scientific community, cannot imagine how non-physical mental processes could interact with the brain, the ghost in the machine. They can't imagine it, therefore it's not true. Now, physicists have gotten over that. Physicists who are following 20th century physics have given up on being able to imagine what is true from the time of Max Planck and from the time of Albert Einstein. Uh, the notion, it was about 1913, they came up with the last model of, the, the, of, of an atom with a nucleus and the little electrons going around. It was, it was, it was uh, did I say Max Planck? I meant to say the Dane, um, my mind a little bit, Werner Heisenberg's boss, his, his mentor, the, the Dane, um, yeah, Niels Bohr, thank you. Niels Bohr. My mind is full of a lot of things right now. Niels Bohr. Niels Bohr, as I recall, I think he was the last one that came up with something you can imagine. And that was pretty sure. You got the nucleus, you know about, know about that. And then you have electrons. But the electrons would give off energy and they'd fall, they would jump from one track of their orbit to a lower orbit because they'd just give enough energy. Then if you give them more energy, they jump out to another track. And so you'd have them jumping from track to track. It's something we can all imagine like having a hub and then, rail, and then trams going around it, but they would just suddenly jump from one track to another. And the more energy they have, then the, the more you know, out they'd be. Well, that turns out to be completely false. We learned that in junior high school, if you went to my high school, that that's the image, that's the model of an atom. It's totally false. There's no such thing. It doesn't take place. And the simple reason for it is that we can't imagine it. 
That's what they really concluded. That was the last time they tried to have an imaginable model of an atom. But it's not true. The evidence is very clear. It's not true. It's useful as a heuristic device. It's something you can put on a blackboard. But it's not true. Uh, quantum entanglement. We can't imagine how that takes place. How is it possible that something can be exhibiting wave qualities with one experiment, like light, and then particle qualities with another, and that's equally true for electrons as is a photon? We can't imagine it. We can't imagine when you have entanglement, if you measure one entity that was entangled with another ent entity, that you simultaneously influence the other entity that could be light years away. We can't imagine that. But there's some kind of a causality taking place there. People who know quantum mechanics have gotten over it, that there are causal interactions here in the physical universe that we cannot imagine, but they're true anyway. The little problem here is that people in the, the mind sciences, the cognitive sciences, don't have to take one single course in 20th century physics to get their PhDs in cognitive psychology or neuroscience. So they're still stuck back in Nord Kelvin's world where everything is mechanical. We can't even imagine how light waves exhibit wave properties in empty space when there's no ether. There's no mechanical explanation. We can't imagine it. That's not even quantum mechanics. But the physicists rolled with it and say, look, there's no ether. Get over it. And they do exhibit wave properties. And we can't imagine it. And we don't really understand it. But it still happens. So get over it. Except for the whole cognitive scientific community hasn't got over it because they're still living in the 19th century. They might want to check out 20th century physics. Something happened there uh, that was rather important. But this, so one can say, but this is an intellectual thing after all, who really cares? Well, I think we really should care. Here's another quote, this time from a very eminent neuroscientist by the name of Eric Kandel, recipient of the two, uh, year 2000 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Very, very distinguished, very highly respected. And he wrote in a, an article called The New Science of the Mind. Let's listen carefully. And, it, and it has, it, it, now we're looking at the pragmatic aspect of this. If you believe that mind is the brain, what follows? Our understanding of the biology of mental disorders. Okay, now we're just starting right out. He's a biologist, okay? Our understanding of the biology of mental, orders, mental disorders has been slow in coming, but... Because he's responding to criti uh, uh, criti criticisms of saying you keep on reducing the mind to the brain, but you know, you're not helping us much here, you neuro neuroscientists. You're really not helping much. Show us what you have. You really helped us for alleviating mental disorders. And he said, okay, it's been slow in coming, but be, be, be patient. But reasoned advantages like, those, those, like these, and he gives, of course, examples, have shown that mental disorders are, now listen up, mental disorders are biological in nature. He's not saying they have a, a biological aspect to them or that they're biological contributing factors. He's not saying that. He's saying mental disorders are biological in nature. That people, this is still a quote, that people are not responsible for having schizophrenia or depression. So part of me breathes a sigh of relief. Well, I don't want to, if people, a person is schizophrenic, I mean, the last thing any of us wants to do is say, it's your fault. Any more than if you get cancer, it's your fault. Or you have Alzheimer's, it's your fault. So schizophrenia, that's, that's, that could really be a biological problem, overwhelmingly. It could be, it could be born with it or have a strong genetic predisposition for it. I think, I think he's a compassionate man. And I think I'm, I think I'm responding compassionately. But then he says, people are not respons responsible for having depression. And then he says, wait a minute. I don't want to say that everybody has depression, is totally responsible for it, but you're not responsible for it at all? 
that this just happened to you? That you, there's no way you might have contributed to depression? Wait a minute, where does this lead? They're not responsible for having, and that individual biology and genetics make significant contributions. In other words, it's biology and genetics that cause not only schizophrenia, but depression. If depression, anxiety. If anxiety, low self-esteem. If low self-esteem, anger. If anger, hatred. If hatred, malevolence. If malevolence, murder. If murder, mass murder. And racism. And ethnic cleansing. And we're not responsible. Oh, wait a minute. You mean we're not responsible for anything? Where do you stop in that slippery slope? You're not responsible for anything. It's genetics and brain chemistry that's doing everything. Where exactly does that slippery slope stop? That you actually say, I, take some, I, I this person here, take some responsibility. There's no speed bumps. It's a slippery slope, and he doesn't follow that. He doesn't follow that. That, that with that little tweak, it's all genetics and brain chemistry, and that all mental disorders are just biological in nature. There's no speed bumps between that, and you're not morally responsible for anything. Show me where the speed bump is. The brain is a complex biological organ possessing immense computational ability. They love to say complex, complex. It certainly is. It constructs our sensory experience. Insufficient data is insufficient evidence. They don't know that. It constructs the Ford plant in whatever city, Detroit or whatever, a Ford plant constructs automobiles. Because we see that all the parts are there and they don't come from anywhere else, not from God or past lives or anything else. Might there not be influences outside the brain that may lead to the occurrence of consciousness, of mental states, emotions, and so forth. He says, no. No, it's constructed by the brain. As if the, this complex and wonderful and terribly mysterious relationship between mind and brain, it's already solved. It's already solved. William James gave three models more than a century ago, facing the mystery. How is it the mind-brain are related? He said, one, is it this, this possibility? He addressed it. He's a smart guy. And they thought about this a long time ago, that the brain produces thoughts, like Kandel just said, as an established scientific fact, because he's writing as a Nobel laureate, speaking with the authority of a biologist. He's not saying, when I'm off outside of my lab and I'm just expressing opinions, this is what I kind of think might be likely. No, he just, boom. He's saying this is a scientific fact, right? William James said, wait a minute, that's one possibility. Another possibility, though, that is that the brain simply enables enables the occurrence of mental events to arise, but it doesn't actually produce them. Another possibility is that the brain more like transmits, transmits mental events from another domain, like a prism refracts light. The light cut doesn't originate from inside the prism, passes through it, and then you get all the colors. Damage the crystal, and you will alter or stop some of the, uh, some of the colors being refracted through or coming out of the crystal. So he said, you know, we have these three models, and that's at least, and the evidence actually supports equally all three. That is, the evidence doesn't decide. The there is no sufficient evidence. William James said more than 100 years ago, the evidence does not point to any one of these being right. But of course, if the brain simply enables 
thoughts or transmits thoughts and so forth, then that would suggest that there may be some non-physical influences on the brain. But neuroscientists don't know how to measure non-physical influences, and so they pull a fast one. They said, what we can't, what we can't measure with our instruments in the neuroscience lab doesn't exist, has no relevance. This is our turf. Stay the hell out. We own it. That's crap science. That's religious fundamentalism science. If it's not in our Bible, if it's not, not in our Bhagavad Gita, our Dhammapada, our sacred scripture, it doesn't exist. And that's what they're doing. If you can't find it with our methodology, it doesn't exist. I'm, I'm, I'm almost ready to say that infuriates me because I love science so much. That's shit science. Man, please stop doing that. That's, that's the saddest excuse for research I've ever heard. You can't measure it, therefore it doesn't exist. And that's what this Nobel laureate is saying. Oh yeah, the pause that refreshes. It's not just dismay, that, that which is not science, that does not have sufficient evidence, is being presented as an established scientific fact. It's that this hurts people. If you're being told that every mental distress you have, from clinically diagnosed ones to everything else, is just a matter of brain chemistry and genetics, you're totally helpless. You're totally helpless. You're not responsible for anything. And you don't know anything. Because what do you know about the brain unless you're a brain scientist? And the brain is where the, all the action is, where all the power is. You're helpless. That's terrible. I would find that debilitatingly depressing if I actually believe that. The brain is a complex organ possessing immense computational ability. It constructs our sensory experience. It, not you, it regulates our thoughts and emotions and controls our actions. Okay, well, that's it. Everybody, you get a freebie. There's now no moral responsibility for anything because the brain is a biological entity that runs according to the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology. You're all off the hook. Whatever you do, it's not your fault. And don't blame it on the brain because it's just a chunk of matter. I think that's absolutely catastrophic. And he's saying this in the New York Times and being, oh, what sorry excuse for sad. For, for, for science, but it's much more tragic than that. What a sorry excuse for, for mental health science. It is responsible not only for relatively simple motor behaviors like running and eating, but also for complex acts that we consider quintessentially human. It is responsible for these acts like thinking, speaking, and creating works of art. So don't praise Michelangelo, praise his brain. And that goes for Einstein, not him as a human being. Never mind him as a human being. What does he know? It's his brain. In other words, they're saying, this is our turf, and we now own you. We're neuroscientists, and we own you now, because you don't know anything about yourself unless we tell you. Do you think there might be a little bit of a power issue here? A little bit of turf? Maybe a little bit of money involved? How about status? Oh, what a sorry excuse for science. Looked at from this perspective, our mind is a set of operations carried out by the brain. The same principle of unity, that is, the mind is the brain, applies to mental disorders. I could weep for a year. I could weep for a year. Seeing this. It's not as an op-ed. Here's this brilliant biologist who has some speculative ideas that he thinks is true. I don't lose any sleep on that at all. At all. But when what he just said is so almost universally accepted in the neuroscientific committee, 
a community. And then it's bleeding over like a hemorrhage or like a toxic waste dump into mental health profession. Then, of course, all the money goes, okay, we have to take it seriously. That means for every disease you have, we're going to come up with the right drug or surgical intervention because that's the immediate implication. And who needs talk therapy? Wow, 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 wow. You know. And placebo effect? Well, let's just not think about that. That will really solve that problem. Let's not ask the question. So all of this comes from their not being able to imagine how a non-physical mind, anything non-physical at all, they can't even imagine how inf information interfaces with the brain. That's non-physical. They can't imagine that either. Right? Lift your arm. Or how about, let's just do this one. I just asked him in Tibetan, please raise his arm. He didn't do it. I told him what an idiot he is. <laughs> there was information coming from my mouth. It was in Tibetan. That was very good Tibetan. Any Tibetan could understand me. That was information. I was transmitting it, and he didn't raise his hand. Not physical. Simple thing like that. They, they do not even allow the possibility that there might be non-physical influences on the brain, even though there obviously are information, even though they have no explanation of the origins of consciousness, no explanation of the actual nature of the correlate that is evidence-based, and all because they can't imagine how something non-physical can interface with something physical, because they're living in the 19th century. A biologist, J.P.S. Haldane, who is a geneticist, an evolutionary biologist, and generally credited with taking a central role in the development of neo-Darwinian thinking. That's the great fusion of Darwin's th thought, neuroscience, and genetics. Put that into a bundle, it's called neo-Darwinism. He took a central role in developing that. He wrote in a, in a book entitled, I love the title, Possible Worlds and Other Papers, published in 1927. He's, I write, he writes, and I quote, I have no doubt that in reality, the future will be vastly more surprising than anything I can imagine. Now my own suspicion is that the universe is not only queerer than we suppose, but queerer than we can suppose. Did you understand that? Clear? Sure, read it. This is, uh, this is actually quoted many times. I've heard it a number of times, and I, then I checked out its source. Make sure that it's not one of those falsely attributed statements. It's not. I have no doubt that in reality, the future will be vastly more surprising than anything I can imagine. In other words, he's not doing what is done ubiquitously in the mind sciences. And that is, if I can't imagine it, it doesn't exist. If I can't imagine how a non-physical mind interfaces with the brain, it doesn't happen. The mind has to be the brain, even though there's no evidence to that effect and enormous evidence that it's not true, just like with the ether. No evidence that it did exist, conclusive evidence that it didn't exist, and still, Lord Kelvin says, of this we're absolutely certain. Boy, that's science. Actually, that's science, right? No, it's not science. That's pseudoscience. And so Haldane is saying, wake up. Wake up. Something may be true, and you may not be able to imagine it. That doesn't make it any less true. Get over it. And people in quantum mechanics got over it more than 100 years ago. But the neuroscientists, not yet. I have no doubt in reality that the future will be vastly more surprising than anything I can imagine. In other words, it extends beyond the limit of our imagination. It's true, but we can't imagine it. Like causality on the quantum level. Now my own suspicion is that the universe is queerer, that is stranger, 
than we suppose, but not only that, it's stranger than we can suppose, or queerer than we can suppose. In other words, he's leaving the, leaving the universe open and not enclosing it in this little tiny cardboard box we call the human imagination and saying the whole of existence has to fit inside of that. Otherwise, we'll simply deny it can be possible. And the title of his book is Possible Worlds. So we look at this and wonder, oh man, when does this ever end? When will they wake up? And Max Planck tells us. Max Planck, great German physicist, founder of quantum mechanics, started the second revolution in physics. He very often quoted statement by him, science advances one funeral at a time. Especially in the 20th century. I mean, he said he, he made a discovery in 1900. He started quantum mechanics in 1900. And just by the way, it was because of something called black box radiation. And what occurred in that was what they called the ultraviolet catastrophe. No need to explain it right now, but it was something that was an empirical fact, this, this ultraviolet radiation, the, the ultraviolet catastrophe in a black box situation, um, yeah, black box radiation. And they looked at it, everybody knew it occurred, and they had no way of explaining it in terms of 19th century physics. I mean, they tried, they had brilliant people trying to figure out how do we fit this into our mechanical explanation of the universe, the one that we know is true, the one that we know is complete. And they couldn't. It just did not fit in any of their pre preconceived boxes. Max Planck came along and said, well, that's because our preconceived boxes are incomplete. Why don't we try the notion that matter is quantized? And here's a theory that accounts for this, but it, it actually violates some of your assumptions in classical physics, 19th century physics. So get over it. I can explain it. You can't. We call it quantum mechanics. You know. So that one. But then even people as brilliant as Poincaré and others could never, could never buy into it. They were so deeply steeped in 19th century physics. They're very intelligent. No lack of intelligence. They could not make the shift. Even though the evidence was there, they couldn't make the shift. Uh, and that was, and so pretty much, this is what Max Planck is saying. For those who are so deeply embedded in 19th century physics, that was the home. That's the world that makes sense to them, right? It's like being having cataracts over your eyes until you're 35, and then at 35, some, you you find a physician takes the cataracts off, and you can see for the first time. Your eyes work perfectly well all along, but you couldn't see anything, right? Well, there's a lot of studies on that. It's absolutely disorienting. It leads to depression, anxiety a lot of internal trauma, because you can't make sense of the world. And sometimes they'll actually, when they're home, they'll turn off the lights. So they, oh, oh, now, okay, now this is the world I'm familiar with. It's all tactile, right? They'll turn off the lights. Because when the lights are on, this makes no sense. Because the brain did not develop when they were infants and children to make all these correlations that children get by touching and feeling and looking and hearing and putting it all together. And the brain is developing all these synapses and connections and so forth so you can connect the visual with the tactile and you can learn what to expect. And it makes sense. That's the word. It makes sense. If your brain has a chance to develop by seeing and hearing and touching and putting those all together, the brain develops. But a person who never saw anything because of some eye defect until that's well into adulthood, then let there be light. There is. But they can't make any sense out of it. And it's terribly disturbing. It's a strong analogy. These people who had cataracts on their eyes because they could not imagine causality outside of 19th century mechanistic materialism. They just felt disoriented. 
just felt disoriented by quantum mechanics, and then it was kind of like a, like a right hook and a left jab. They got it from quantum mechanics and relativity. And Werner Eisheisenberg said, we feel like the very foundation is shaking beneath our feet. But he was young. He got over it. But the ones who are fully educated and earned their prestige, their power, their endowed chairs and so forth in the 19th century, many of them, they just had to die off. That was the only way it progressed. They just had to die off, one funeral at a time. My strong suspicion to break out of this self-induced dementia of materialistic reduction of mind to brain, people of my generation have to die off. There's just too much vested interest, too much power, too much prestige, and too much money. That's what it is. That no matter how much evidence there is to refute their dogma, which is not based on compelling evidence in the first place, and no matter how little evidence there is to support their dogma, they say, but look, I'm getting the funding. I've got the prestige, and I've got the, I've got the power. And so what do I need evidence for? I'm winning. And you're losing. So take your ev evidence elsewhere. I'm not interested. I don't need to. Your placebo effect, whatever. So we can't explain it. Big deal. It can't be that important. We'll explain it one day. Just give us more money. We can't explain the origins of consciousness. Give us more money. We can't, we can't cure most mental diseases. It's okay. Give us more money. Just trust us. You know, blind faith. Just do that. You know, we don't have the evidence. Just trust us and give us more money. So his second statement by Max Planck, he writes this in 1958, Religion und Naturwissenschaft, religion and natural science. Under these conditions, it is no wonder, under these conditions, this whole situation of materialism dominating the 20th century, under these conditions, I quote, it is no wonder that the movement of atheists which declares religion to be just a deliberate illusion invented by power-seeking priests and which has for the pious belief in a higher power nothing but words of mockery. Okay, Dawkins, Sam whatever, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens, and this goes on and on. He just described them, but, you know, 50 years, 50 years ago or so. Has nothing but words of mockery, eagerly makes use of progressive scientific knowledge and in a presumed unity with it, this is the crucial point. And this is 1958. The presumed unity of the metaphysical beliefs of reductionism, materialist, mechanism, you know, mechanic, material, mechanistic materialism, the presumed unity between that and science. So they want to ride on the laurels, the momentum, the prestige and credibility, the triumphs of science, and say, you can't have science without us. Presumed unity. So now there's a, they're riding in the bandwagon of science, which is quite glorious, with their own beliefs, and saying you can't have one without the other, this expands in an ever faster pace in its disintegrating action on all nations of the earth and on all social levels. I do not need to explain in any more detail that after its victory, the victory of materialism, not only all the most precious, precious treasures of our culture would vanish, but which is even worse, also any prospects at a better future. I think he's at least as tough as I am. But he started the second revolution in quantum mechanics. The second revolution in physics, quantum mechanics. So I'll give an analogy. Much as the lancet fluke, the lancet fluke, a little parasite, 
much as the lancet fluke and other manipulative parasites cause their hosts to engage in unlikely, even suicidal ways. Unlikely is when scientists who are so intelligent, so well-trained, know the scientific method, should have some understanding of the history of science, behave in radically unscientific ways, which we have seen time and again, in these, especially with modern mind sciences. It causes them to behave in even suicidal ways, like you know, scientists eagerly jumping on the bandwagon to create weapons of mass destruction. You know? Science eagerly working for Hitler. Scientists eagerly working for Stalin, for Mao Zedong. And on occasion, working for the American government. No qualms. Weapons of mass destruction, sure. How many do you want? How big do you want? Just pay us well enough. And of course, well, sure, the terrorists will never get them because you're such a responsible government. That's irresponsible and it's suicidal. And unlikely for any sane scientist. But unfortunately, there have been who, many who do not quite rise to the level of, level of sanity. So they cause their hosts, what I'm saying here is that the scientific materialism is like the lancet fluke and other manipulative parasites. And the host is science, scientific community and everyone who supports it. It causes the host to engage in unlikely, even suicidal ways, all for the benefit of the guest of those who believe in scientific materialism, not the host, those who really passionately love and believe in science. And so has the dogma of scientific materialism commandeered modern science? causing it to neglect the empirical observation of mental phenomena, which we're doing every day here, often stupefying the mind. One of my favorite ones was a, a, a psychiatrist that defined placebo as being that something that has no therapeutic efficacy, and then, it said, and then it said, and the benefits you get from it are from the placebo. He said it in one sentence. I can quote you, it's quoted in the New York Times. And you're a psychiatrist, we're going to you for mental health. You're, you're delusional. You can't even get one sentence out with con without contradicting yourself. A placebo has no therapeutic power, and the benefits you get from it are from the placebo. Why? Because he cannot imagine how something non-physical like faith, belief, and so forth could possibly do the effect. So find the nearest innocent bystander. What's nearby? Placebo. You're it. But I'm innocent. I'm innocent. No, you're it. You're physical. That's enough. So I've analyzed the issue of insufficient evidence. Let's look briefly, because we have a couple of minutes, on the issue. So insufficient evidence. We have this saturating the modern, modern cognitive sciences, and it's cropped up from the, from the time of Copernicus through many of the greats, and sometimes doing terrible damage, sometimes not. But the notion that scientists never do it is, according to what would say, not true. But now, here's the real, but actually a more important issue than that. It's wrong everywhere, every blah, 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 to believe anything without insufficient evidence. Here's the real brunt of the question, the real gist of that question, or that is the question I'm putting to that. What does and not does not constitute evidence? What does and does not constitute evidence? Everything hinges really on that. So they can say, okay, some scientists have blown it, but look, you know, we've gotten by, look how well science is done. So Alan, shut up. You know, we're, we're doing fine here. And you're just wrong about the mind. It is the brain, so shut up. What constitutes evidence? Well, let's look. We'll go to an astronomer. He appears on the press a lot. He's very articulate. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So he's speaking for many of his sort. It's not an anomalous view. He says, as a scientist. No, so now he's as a scientist, which means I got a lot of people behind me. I need something better than your eyewitness testimony. In other words, your evidence, you non-scientist. I need something better than you saw it. 
Because even if in the court of law, eyewitness testimony is a high form of evidence, in the court of science, it is the lowest form of evidence you could possibly put forth. In other words, in the court of law, if you say, I saw this individual come up to the person, shout angry words, and shoot him with a gun. I saw that. That's enough to put the man away. And he may get the electric chair, right? Many places they kill people who do that. The government kills people, right? So I saw him do it. I saw it was an act of rage, and he shot, and he shot the children as well. I saw it. Then he, goes to, he gets at least life imprisonment, and maybe in some states in the United States, he gets killed, all right? He gets executed. It's good enough to execute somebody, but it's not good enough in the court of science because they have a higher standard. And that is to say, he just said that what we witness, we non-scientists, because he said, we scientists, where there's clearly an us and them thing going on here. I, as a scientist, you know our side, and then all you who are not scientists, your eyewitness accounts, your, eyewitness, your subjective experience, that counts for nothing for us. You're not scientists. He said that's the lowest form. He doesn't merely say it's questionable, dubious, prone to error. He says in the court of science, it's the lowest form of evidence you could possibly put forth. In other words, whether you're, I just read about datura. Datura, it's called jimson weed. I read up because I I'd heard about it and I thought I had the right answer. I did. If you take this, this substance, it doesn't simply create hallucinations. It creates delirium where unlike LSD or mescaline and so forth, where you're kind of grooving, isn't this cool to have these you know, hallucinations and then they're over and it wasn't that fun, like seeing a really great movie. If you take datura, it creates, a, but it creates a, the hallucinations, but you have no ability to distinguish between the hallucinations and reality. None. You are really psychotic. It's temporarily, it, it lasts for some days, because I read an account of a person who took it. He said he'll never take it again. He tried, he attacked somebody in a disco, because he was psychotic. It's, it's self-induced psychosis. It's delirium. It's, it's hallucination, but you don't even know you're hallucinating. It sounds absolutely terrible. Uh, I would say that's worse. If a person is taking datura and you make some observations, I'd say that's worse, wouldn't you? That's, that's worse. Or if you're just taking LSD and you're having a really groovy trip and you think you're a you know, six-foot bunny rabbit, I think that, that would be worse, isn't it? Well, Tyson says, no, that's not worse. Your eyewitness accounts the ones that hold up in court, that's the lowest. In other words, you're right on the level of Datura and LSD. We don't count. Our observations don't count. I'm thinking about the 16th to 15th century. Roman Catholic Church, maybe at its lowest, its nadir in this whole history, I'm not really sure, because it had quite a few low points. But in the 15th century, the lay people weren't even allowed to read the Bible. Right? It was only in Latin and Greek. Parts of the, you know, the New Testament. It was only Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. They, the lay people were not allowed. They wouldn't let them read it because they might actually start interpreting it you know, and thinking they could understand something without dependence upon the priests who are asking for their 10% regularly. And then any experiences people had, that doesn't count. We'll tell you whether it counts. We will tell you whether you're having an experience of the Holy Spirit, angels, and so we will tell you, you don't count. We hold all the power here. We, have the, we, can, we, can, we can kill you. We can not only kill you, we can send you to hell forever. So we can do much more than the king. He can only kill you. We priests, we can send you to hell forever. We can excommunicate you. You are toast for eternity. So listen up. 
your experience doesn't count and you can't read the Bible, we won't let you. We will not let it be translated into your vernacular. We hold all the cards, we hold all the power, and you have none. But you can be fearful now because we have all the power. If you want to go to heaven, rely on us because you have no way apart from us. If you want to go to hell, we can send you there. And if you don't listen to us, you will go there. Take out the priests, put in the scientists. Your perspective doesn't count at all. It's the lowest form. It doesn't count. It's not evidence. You may as well take in Dadura. We don't care. You're already at the lowest. Take Dadura. You're on the same plane. You're still lowest. Because what's lower than lowest? He's already said. You've hit the, your normal perception. It's nothing. We hold all the cards. Michael Shermer, who prides himself, he's the editor and founder of the journal The Skeptic. You think, oh, they're going to be really skeptical. We have so much bullshit floating around. Maybe these people can start cleaning up the mess. So Michael Shermer said, okay, what is skepticism? Well, I quote, skepticism is the application of reason to any and all ideas. Boy, that sounds good to me. No sacred cows allowed. Oh, that's, but I love that. In other words, just not blind religious beliefs, philosophical beliefs, materialistic beliefs, no sacred cows. In other words, we're going to be even. We're going to be skeptical of all claims that don't have really compelling evidence behind them, including equivalence of the mind and brain, and so forth and so on. He continues, in other words, skeptics do not go into an investigation close to the possibility that a phenomenon might be real or, claim, or, or that a claim might be true. Now, boy, that, they're really open-minded. This sounds great. When we say we are skeptical, in quotation, we mean that we must see compelling evidence before we believe. Oh, we're back to compelling evidence. We heard that one right back before, right? We, we need compelling evidence before we believe. Okay, well, there are some problems there, but okay. Uh, okay, what's compelling evidence? Michael Sherman, please enlighten us, you great skeptic. I quote, everybody has eyes and ears and a brain that perceives and so on. I think they're all really equally unreliable as eyewitnesses. We're very bad at recounting things we think we saw. So we're skeptical of you. We're skeptical of you. You don't count. You have no compelling evidence. You've just spent the last five, month, five weeks meditating. Whatever you experience, it doesn't count. It's not scientific. It's not physical. It wasn't derived by means of physical measurements. The only compelling evidence is physical evidence. The only way to do it is the scientific method. We've now heard whatever you experience that is not physical and is not by way of scientific method, third-person objective quantifiable, that's not compelling. It doesn't matter what you experience. It doesn't matter. You don't count at all. We count. You don't count. We will be skeptical of everything you say, but we'll let the bullshitters in neuroscience speak until the sun sets. And that's just fine, because they're scientists, and they're materialists. And our skepticism is for everything outside of materialism. We won't tell you that point blank, but look at the pages, the journals that we published over the last years and see whether anything stands up to our skepticism that's not within the materialistic paradigm. I think you have a really long search. It's phony baloney pseudo-skepticism. It's a skepticism of a religious fundamentalist that said, we are skeptical of everything except for the one true way and the one true book. We're skeptical of everybody outside of ourselves. Very skeptical. But our book, we have the only way. Our book.
Science was invented to overcome that. The mania, the hysteria, the dogmatism of the medieval era with its witch hunting, which tragic, cataclysmic consequences. And now science in the 20th century has become the church. The same dogma, the same closed-mindedness, the same pseudo-skepticism. It really needs some help. It really needs some help. They're going to have to die off one, one at a time. And I don't wish any of them to die. But the entrenchment is so deep and the power and the money and the prestige is so heavy and so massively influenced on what can and cannot be studied that it's hopeless as it stands. But there is the next generation coming. My generation, I think, is hopeless. I think hopeless. Too much vested interest. But the next generation, the ones in graduate school now, undergraduates, junior, not completely brainwashed, don't yet have the vested interest, don't have the money, don't have the prestige, don't have the power, and do have open minds. My hope, my aspiration is this next generation, they're going to break open, break this open, and let science breathe some fresh air for the first time in 150 years. That's it. I have a little bit more tomorrow, but pretty much getting close. With one more. <laughs> Psychologist Ann Treisman. So, okay, so Michael Skirme, he's a journalist. What does he know? Psychologist Ann Treisman, very distinguished psychologist. Uh, I, was, I organized a minor life meeting four years ago with a very fine psychologist, and we wanted somebody, a psychologist, who really understands it, who really was a premier, top, top notch for a scientific study of attention. So that was one of the themes of the conference that, in fact, I conceived of. So the person we invited is very eminent, very eminent psychologist, Anne Treisman, and her husband is Nobel laureate. Er, um, can't remember his name right now, it doesn't matter. But she's really distinguished. And so she, she said in this conference the following, this is a very close paraphrase. She says, perception is a kind of externally, perception now, this is our visual experience, auditory experience, and of course, introspection, I mean, that even, hardly even comes up. But perception, okay, well, we're watching. Perception is a kind of externally guided hallucination. So well, that's us. Externally guided hallucination. So your experience of the world around you, we're 80% ocular, you're hallucinating, we are hallucinating all the time. Which means your first person, oh, it's the same thing we've just been hearing about. What you're seeing doesn't count, that's not evidence, you're hallucinating. You may have just, well, may, may, may just as well have taken datura. You're hallucinating, you non-scientists. We create, I continue, we create experience rather than photographing it. Okay, fair enough, but we create experience. Well, this is what a psychotic person does. I mean, are these the only two options? You're either creating it as a free fiction, or you're hallucinating, like a person who's psychotic, taking Dadora or LSD, you're schizophrenic, or you're photographing. Is, well, we know we're not photographing it. Nobody's that stupid, unless you're naive realists. How about something in between? Well, there's nothing in between. Those are the two... You're not photographing it, therefore we, cre we create. Psychologists regard subjective reports, okay? Psychologists studying subjects, like including meditators and psychotic people and normal people. They study subjects, right? People like us. Uh, psychologists regard subjective reports as data. So if you go to, to a person like Andreesman, Princeton University, superb university, keeps on getting, number, I think, number one in the, in the country, the U.S., and you come, if you came to her after this eight-week retreat and said, 
This is what I experienced. These were the discoveries I made about the nature of my mind and emotions. And I made this discovery, and I learned this about myself and this about myself. And he said, this is what happened just in eight weeks. You know? Or let alone actually interviewing the yogis who spent 40,000 hours meditating. I said, what did you discover? What, what happened? And she says, psychologists regard subjective reports, and that's all of them, as data rather than as factual accounts. In other words, we attribute no, no factual status to your observations at all. There's just data uh, that Maria Elena said this and Paolo said this. Okay, we'll crunch the data. Thank you. You can go now. Uh, thank you, who don't know anything, really. You're hallucinating all the time. But thank you for coming to the lab and not killing anybody. We appreciate that. And so scientists, let's, let's, let's analyze their data here, which our subject provided for us. Uh, isn't it wonderful that they're really not different than chimpanzees or rats, you know? Because it's just data. And we give them no credibility whatsoever because they're subjective reports. It's the same thing, isn't it? From the astronomer, from the great skeptic, from a psych an eminent psychologist. If she were some dumbbell, I wouldn't quote her, but she's really eminent. So I checked out hallucinations, that all of our experience consists of hallucinations. And I said, well, okay. I said, okay, fill me in. What's a hallucination? A hallucination, and this is from, you know, from Wiki. It's a good source, I saw. Hallucinations involve sensing things while awake that appear to be real, but instead have been created by the mind. Well, good. And now we, that we cleared that one up. Uh, if it's created by the mind, it's not real. Like your emotions and depression and happiness and sadness and, and loving kindness and bodhicitta, realization of emptiness and experience of, of impermanence uh, and attention skills and laxity and dullness and excitation and so forth, those are created by the mind, aren't they? I mean, you've seen them being created. Well, they're not real. Because a hallucination is you're conflating that which is real with that which is simply mm, in the mind. What's real? Oh, but we know the answer to that. The external, objective, physical world, which you never see. Because all you see is hallucinations. And that it's physical? Well, you can't see that either, but, well, just take that one on faith. In the great black hole of the universe, um, the scientists have filled it with matter. And just trust them. Just trust them. So they're not real. They're instead created by the mind. So there's no middle ground there. It's not real and created by the mind. Like dreams. Dreams are not real, which means they what, have no causal efficacy? When, when dreams do have causal efficacy. Of course, we know that. They make you feel, wake, wake, wake up in the morning, you feel terrible. Uh, okay, but well, no, it's the brain that did that. There are few treatments for many types of hallucinations. However, for those hallucinations caused by mental illness, and of course that's a brain problem, right? A, psychiat a psychologist or psychiatrist should be alerted and treatment will be based on the observations of those doctors. Per, uh, doctors or priests, what did it say? I'm not quite sure. One more, and this will wrap up a whole section. Robert Scharf, professor of Buddhist studies, is a distinguished chair, he has an endowed chair, Robert Scharf, professor of Buddhist studies and chair of the Center for Buddhist Studies and director of the group in Buddhist studies at UC Berkeley, which is an outstanding university. Really, some people think it's the finest public university in the whole world. It's truly outstanding university. So that's one, one title stacked on top of another title. Here's a quote from a paper he wrote. Scholars of religion are not presented with experiences like of religious people, contemplative yogis, and so forth. Scholars of religion are not presented with experiences that stand in need of interpretation, but rather with texts, narratives, performances, and so forth. 
So it's not only the psychologists and the neuroscientists and the astronomers, but now it's head of Buddhist studies at a distinguished university. And that is, you could come to him, apparently, if he still holds his view, he's about 20, 20 years old, and you say, oh, professor, you're interested in Buddhist studies. I'm a Buddhist, and I'm practicing Buddhism. I've just come out of a 10-year retreat, and I achieved shamatha and this and this, and would you like me to share some of my experiences? Because this has been going on for 2,500 years, people doing what I just did. Uh, would you like to know, you know what happens when you meditate? And his answer is no. No. Um, we are not presented with experiences. That is, if you present experiences, we will not look. We will not listen. We will not hear. Because that's not what we do. We don't need to interpret your experiences. We will treat them like they don't count. Not worthy of interpretation. They don't matter. They don't count. They are not evidence. They are nothing. So keep it to yourself. Because what we are presented with, what we deal with, are texts, narratives, performances, and so forth. We will enter into an absolutely I-it relationship with Buddhism and Buddhist community. And we will definitely not deal in, enter into an I-you relationship. Because that would imply you have experiences that we might need to take seriously. And we refuse. So don't knock on our door. He continues, thus while experience, construed as that which is immediately present, may indeed be irrefutable and indubitable. Maya, that may be May, may indeed be the case. We must remember that whatever epi epistemological certainty experience may offer is gained only at the expense of any possible discursive meaning or significance. Man, I think I've just been hit with a cannon. Whatever experience, whatever epistemological certainty experience may offer. In other words, if you have an experience and it gives rise to some decisive insight, you remember Dujum Lingba? First understanding, then you get some experience, then direct insight, and then, the, then acquiring confidence. That's the sequence to liberation. Remember that? Understanding, experiences, nyam, and then insight, knowledge, discovery, and then acquiring confidence that you've nailed it, you're absolutely certain. It's got into your bloodstream. It's you, you're viewing reality in a new way. A revolution has taken place. Right? That's classic Buddhism. It's not just... Dzogchen. And he's saying, well, whatever experience you have, whatever epistemological certainty that experience may offer is gained only at the expense of any possible discursive meaning or significance. In other words, it doesn't count. How else do you interpret that statement? It doesn't count. It has no meaning or significance. You're gaining that certainty at the expense of meaning and significance, which means it has no meaning and no significance. The more certain you are, then the less meaning and significance it has. Your experience doesn't count at all. And I don't care how many years you spent in meditation. It doesn't count. We're not interested. Give us a text, and we'll look at the text as an it. And you write a text. Send us an email. To put it in another way, and this is the final quote, all attempts to signify inner experience are destined to remain well-meaning squirms that get us nowhere. Let me read that again. To put it in another way, all attempts to signify inner experience, you know, introspection, meditation, are destined to remain well-meaning squirms that get us nowhere. And that's from a man who's chair of Buddhist studies at one of the major universities in the country. 
We get it from philosophers. We get it from religious scholars. We get it from psychologists. We get it from astronomers, from neuroscientists. And it's the same goddamn thing every single time. If this were a few weirdos here and there, I'd say, okay, but you know, they're weird people. But when these people are dominating academia, dominating media, dominating the cash flow of every research that can be done, and they're coming out with this bullshit, I feel this is really catastrophic. And they're all saying the same thing. We see it now from the same corners. So this is serious. What we're doing here, either we are utterly wasting our time, or we're doing something enormously important. But there's really, I would say, there's nothing in between. It's either really, really important what we're doing, or it's a complete waste of time. We're hallucinating, and we have what we're doing, what any insights we're having has no significant meaning. Somebody's right here and somebody's wrong. A little bit of passion is coming up. But this is the world we're stepping into when we leave this place. This is not considered lunacy, what we've just been reading. It's not considered, it's not coming out of some insane asylum. It's important. So be braced to step back in the 21st century back into the rest of the world that they like to call real. Enjoy your evening. I'll see you tomorrow morning.